few years back, I had a co-worker who's named Eddie. He'd been living in the United States for most of his life, but he was born in Nigeria and moved here at an extremely young age. Growing up in West Africa, he only had two movies to give him an entire frame of reference for what American culture was like. One of those was the Vanilla Ice vehicle, Cool as Ice, and the other was Little Shop of Horrors. So when he moved to the U.S. at the age of five, and they didn't tell him that he was moving to stay, he found that out later, it was very crushing to him, he came to Lynn, Massachusetts in the middle of February and was wondering why everything was so dirty and cold and how do the white people live like this and where are the palm trees? And one thing that really disappointed him about Americans is that it turns out that we don't spontaneously break out into elaborately choreographed song and dance numbers. I always think back on that and smile because no matter how out there or weird something is, when it gets thrown out into the world, it can become a normalized signal post. I don't, stone for people. Yeah, I don't think that Frank Oz or anyone else associated with Little Shop of Horrors figured they were being cultural ambassadors, but they were. So for this episode, we're going to be dissecting Little Shop of Horrors and looking at all the various ripples that it has created since it dropped into our world in our year of the Lord, 1986. <laughs> my name is Ryan. It's a real deep dive. And I'm Rachel. This one is my pick this week. Yes, I mean, I'm sure I would have done Little Shop at some point or another. This movie's a big deal to me and to a lot of people. I'm guessing we'll get a decent amount of traffic out there from it. Yeah, um, I my story, my, my story about Little Shop of Horrors is that my mom, who has, well, you won't admit it, but a bit of a twisted sense of humor, loves Little Shop of Horrors, and she thought it was a really great idea to show like a five and an eight year old this movie and it scared the hell out of me and it was nothing to do with the plant like I was raised on the Muppets so puppets were like ooh puppets it's the part where uh, Seymour dismembers the dentist I freaked the fuck out I almost like come on back it's gonna be okay but I was still like oh it's really scary <laughs> <laughs> I saw Fiddler Clowns from Outer Space when I was four years old, and I got <laughs> nightmares from that. And that movie's not trying to be scary. It's just all about how like a small child's mind processes the information. But the idea of being wrapped in a cocoon of cotton candy and then having someone drink my blood with a crazy straw, that did things to me. <laughs> movie that scared me as a kid was planes, trains, and automobiles, the, the wrong way scene where they see themselves as skeletons. That was scary when I was five. <laughs> Mind you, my parents were like, oh, the scene where uh, Steve Martin says, all, says the F-bomb 20 times in a row. My parents were like, we're just going to turn the volume all the way down. <laughs> anyway, that's not what we're talking about today. Yeah, let's dive into the plot of this one. Because there actually is a plot. Yeah, it takes place in uh, New York in the early 1960s. It is flatly mentioned that uh, Kennedy is the president at the time. A Greek chorus of three doo-wop vocalists warn the audience of the carnage to come. We are then introduced to Seymour Krellborn and Audrey, employees of Mushnik's Struggling Flower Shop located in the rough neighborhood of Skid Row, uh, which uh, Eddie considered the American national anthem, and I think we should take him up on that. You know, let's go with it. He had a point. 
They lament that they cannot escape the dire poverty of the neighborhood. Mushnik considers closing the store due to its continual lack of customers, but Audrey suggests that they draw more business if Mushnik prominently displays one of the strange, interesting plants that Seymour acquired from a Chinese Isn't that merchant. So strange and unusual plant <laughs> during an eclipse in the preceding week. Mushnik is initially skeptical of the drawing power of the mysterious plant, but when Seymour plays the plant, which he's named Audrey too, it instantly brings in business from a curious public. The plant, if you've never seen or heard of Little Shop of Horrors, it looks like a small, right now, is a small Brussels sprout with lips. I mean, I'm not wrong, am I? <laughs> no, I mean, I think it's supposed to be uh, like a Venus flytrap, but a little more anthropomorphized. Not yeah. unlike the, the piranha plants from Mario. Yeah, I've seen videos where somebody at like a video game store made a bunch of the puppets start singing, Bing, bing! Alas, Audrey too begins to wither. Seymour is unsure about what nourishment it requires, but he discovers that the plant has a taste for human blood when he accidentally pricks his finger. And it goes... <laughs> and that's a nice approximation. Yeah, basically. After feeding Audrey too with his own blood, Seymour becomes a local celebrity as the plant grows to massive size. Seymour begins to muster enough confidence to romantically pursue Audrey at this point. The she, girl. Yes. <laughs> but she's trapped in an abusive relationship with a sadistic dentist named Oren. Soon after by Steve Martin. <laughs> soon after, Audrey too begins talking to Seymour, and it doesn't take much to convince Seymour to kill Oren and use his corpse as plant food. This is a big song number about all the wonderful things that this plant that can't walk and give Seymour if he it's does what he wants. It's the devil. He's a singing devilish plant who lives off of human blood. Yeah, the parts of this are Faust. Other parts of this are the monkey's paw. Yeah, I, I could, I can agree with that for sure. Seymour schedules a dental appointment shortly after Oren deals with a masochistic patient. <laughs> He brings a revolver to kill Oren, but a mishap with a nitrous oxide mask kills Oren before Seymour is forced to execute him. Seymour then chops up Oren's body, as Rachel mentioned earlier, <laughs> and feeds it to Audrey too, but the spectacle is witnessed by Mushnik. Audrey feels guilty about how Oren's disappearance is a relief to her, but Seymour comforts her and they admit their feelings to each other. That night, Mushnik ambushes Seymour with a gun and threatens to turn him over to the police unless he leaves town, and thus leaving the profitable Audrey too in his hands. Audrey too intervenes by devouring Mushnik. Overwhelmed by his success and Audrey II's demands, Seymour hatches a scheme to elope with Audrey and flee to the suburbs, leaving Audrey too to starve. After Audrey agrees to Seymour's marriage proposal, Audrey too catches Seymour as he's leaving. Seymour reluctantly agrees to feed Audrey too some meat from the butcher shop, but Audrey too uses his absence to goad Audrey into the shop with plans to eat her. Seymour... He literally calls her on the phone. <laughs> yeah, his, his vines are very mobile at this point. Yeah, he's gotten very large. Seymour returns just in time to rescue Audrey from the jaws of Audrey too. He then confesses everything to Audrey, only to learn that she was romantically interested in him well before he became a celebrity. After fending off another profiteer, Seymour resolves to dispatch Audrey too before it can kill again. Returning to the shop, Seymour learns that Audrey too is an alien intent on conquering the human race. Hey, he's a mean, mean, what is it? I'm a mean green mother from outer space and I'm bad, mean green bad. Somebody had the song stuck yeah, in Yeah, I did. You know what? Ever since we watched this again <laughs> yes. yesterday. All right, honestly, we'll talk more about this later, but the music is very good. Audrey, too, manages to trap Seymour, but an exposed electrical wire proves to be its undoing. Oh, shit. 
lots of 80s blue lightning yeah, effects. Yeah, I feel like you're going to mention the 80s blue lightning effects, aren't you? <laughs> yeah, that rotoscope 80s blue lightning. They yes. don't make it like that anymore. No, they don't. Yeah, the ensuing explosion destroys the shop, but Seymour survives and is reunited with Audrey. Last scenes are Seymour and Audrey buying a home in the suburbs, but a young space plant can be seen smiling in their front yard. The end. Yes. Little Shop of Horrors is a remake of a Roger Corman film from 1960. If you saw our episode about Chopping Mall, you are already familiar with Corman's factory method. The original one, it's an interesting movie, and I'm glad I saw it once, but it's pretty far from uh, a classic. Uh, hunt it down if you feel like it. It has lapsed into the public domain, hence the existence of this musical to begin with. It is noteworthy for being the first screen role for Jack Nicholson. Hey, we all gotta start somewhere, right? Yeah, he was the masochistic dental patient. <laughs> Uh, all right. That actually, that makes sense. That tracks. Yeah, that was a very minor part, but after Jack Nicholson became incredibly famous and Little Shop of Horrors is in the public domain, lots of fly-by-night video companies put out cheap VHS copies that put Jack Nicholson's face, like, very prominently on the cover. Re-advertising. Yeah, there are plenty of examples of that. Nicholson's is the most infamous, but other ones would be like uh, Jennifer Aniston was a minor supporting character in the Leprechaun film before <laughs> Friends came out. Uh, Jim Carrey filmed an infomercial about a ski resort that after Jim Carrey became famous, the ski resort put it out like it was a real movie. <laughs> so one of those. Uh, oh, yeah. Yeah, after the original Roger Corman film laughs into the public domain, it was an off-Broadway musical produced by David Geffen. Yes, that David Geffen, the music mogul. Uh, the lyrics were done by uh, Howard Ashman, who also wrote the book, you know, with the music being composed by Alan Menken. If you're a Disney nerd, those names are familiar to you. They are two of the principal creative figures of the Disney Renaissance. My brother Sylvan said that they built the Disney Renaissance single-handedly, which I'm not going to go that far, but... They are a pretty instrumental force in it. Yeah, they, they, uh, Disney owes them a, a great deal. And it is odd that they picked the carnivorous plant people to resurrect their brand after the Black Cauldron fell apart. Disney was much more creative back then than they are now, to be perfectly honest. Well, they, they still make some weird gambles that pay off every now and again. They picked the Avenue Q people to do the music for Frozen, and that paid off big. I guess... The songs in the film, uh, they owe a great deal. The 50s doo-wop and early Motown, very convincing earworms. The the Motown thing is very prominent when we get to the casting of oh, the yeah. film version. <laughs> of the plant. Little Shop of Horrors had a five-year run at the Orpheum Theater, one of the most prominent off-Broadway New York theaters. However, it then moved to Broadway. Uh, it has a very small cast, which makes it ideal for community theater, school productions, and other amateur groups. Yeah, I was on the, the crew of my high school's production of Little Shop of Horrors. I ran the spots, which was great because that meant I got to watch the show every night. Yeah, I did. Um, I wasn't in a like a full on school production. I was in one of those line readings where people are just reciting the script to each other and nice. part of a music class. They made me be like one of the like really minor characters. I think it was the flower shop guy who just credulously bought a whole bunch of roses. Oh, man, you could have had fun as the dentist or something. <laughs> some people were pushing me to be uh, Audrey, too, but they, they, they gave it to some other uh, guy. You, you, I think you, you could do Audrey, too, if you really were feeling it. I don't know if I have the voice for that. I don't know. It's, you know, art is always subjective. It's always good to, 
you know, reinterpret old favorites, although Levi Stubbs is the voice of Audrey, too, to me. Yeah, people keep saying I have NPR voice, especially when I'm doing <laughs> the show, so I don't know if I'd be a decent Audrey. <laughs> But, yeah. All things considered, I'm Diane Reed. <laughs> it's also fairly popular okay. among Shadowcast doing midnight screenings. I saw one with Rocky Horror that's the Obviously. most popular Shadowcast, but they did a double feature. And sometimes they would do Clue because Tim Curry, but that night they mm-hmm. did Rocky Horror with Little Shop. And the guy playing Frankenfurter was also Audrey too, which seems like bullshit. You gave yourself the two juiciest parts. Yeah, I'm like, is he footing the bills or something? I mean, I'd be like, I'd be exhausted from, you know, being the plant and then having to go be Frankenfurter. I don't want to be like a Transylvanian after being the plant. Yeah, it should be Shakespeare rules. Like the guy playing Brad in the Rocky Horror should get to be Audrey too. Exactly. This movie was in production hell for a bit because while the musical was very popular and a lot of film studios were initially interested into it, it, they had a hard time convincing people that it could translate to film, especially since there's a not terribly great Roger Corman film that's got the ball rolling to begin with. Steven Spielberg was initially attached to produce and Martin Scorsese, of all people, was set to direct. I mean, why not? Scorsese actually does have a very wide-ranging and varied filmography. People only really know him for, you know, Taxi Driver and Raging Bull and Goodfellas. But if you watch some of the other ones, you can go off the wall. I don't don't know how many musicals he has. Not like he has plenty of concert films. I mean, I've seen um, Age of Innocence, and he called that the most violent film he's ever made. And there's no violence. Yeah, I know. And there's a whole lot of psychological torture. Oh, oh yes. I, I remember watching it with my mom and just end, and watching the ending and being very frustrated. <laughs> yeah, Scorsese wanted to be in 3D. Uh, this was delayed by a lawsuit by Charles B. Griffith, who had written the original film. For a time, John Landis was attached to the film as well. Frank Oz was approached as he was finishing Muppets Take Manhattan. He was initially reluctant because he considered Little Shop to be beholden to the medium of live theater, as I mentioned earlier. But he came around when he began considering the cinematic ideas for the story. He also thought that this would be a good method for him to distinguish himself from Jim Henson. Mm -hmm. Well, Frank Oz and Jim Henson are about as close as possible. Bert and Ernie's relationship is based on theirs. (laughs) I'm sure Oz wanted to be seen as his own man at this Uh, which one's Bert and which one's Ernie? Ernie is Jen Henson. <laughs> yeah, the film was shot on sound stages at Pinewood Studios in England, which is the largest in the world at the time. It was called the 007 stage. They were deliberately artificial to lend a fantastical element to the film. It is a, a very good set, though. Yeah, the set couldn't be heated properly, so the actors, like, their breath could be seen, the condensation. (laughs) Oh, no. (laughs) So they had to keep putting ice cubes in their mouth in order to keep that from happening. Yep. As Rachel mentioned, the plant effects are completely used with puppetry. There is no blue screen in this film. There is no CGI. And it's amazing. It's not like, you know, lips slapping together. And I think that will also be something we should talk about when it comes to translating this from stage to screen. Because in the production I was in, we had several different puppeteers for each of the plants. The biggest plant, we had a girl cast to do that, but she could not lift the puppet because it was very heavy. So we recruited 
one of our uh, linebackers. And, you know, the, the, the lips will, the mouth will like open and close, but the puppet doesn't enunciate what he's saying. But then when you get to the movie, Audrey 2 really looks like he's talking. Audrey 2 is designed by Lyle Conway. There are at least six or seven different iterations of it, depending on which source you go through. The frame rate for Audrey speaking was slowed down to about 12 to 16 frames per second in order to make his movements more convincing. They're very convincing. Yeah, there are about (laughs) 60 puppeteers uh, working on the character uh, overall, the most well-known being Brian Henson, Jim Henson's son. The rest of them were cherry-picked from Frank Oz's various Muppet connections. Frank Oz knew a lot of puppeteers. That's not hard to believe. Yeah. Who wants to be a giant talking carnivorous plant? Me! (laughs) We get to the original ending. Okay, yeah. Yeah, in the Broadway uh, show, traditionally, Audrey 2 devours Seymour and Audrey and then moves to conquer the world, possibly with a legion of Audrey 2s just coming down from space and making similar Faustian bargains with weird schmucks like Seymour. Geffen was opposed to this ending, but Oz really wanted to do it. Yeah, the production that I was in in high school, I had seen the movie, and then when I was watching like the first run-through as part of the crew, I was like, okay, yeah, and it just kind of hit me when you watch the sad ending, but we're going to get into this. It's different when you're watching like a tragedy on stage because you're aware the entire time that there are like people up on the stage, the line between like the fourth wall and performance versus reality. It's a lot closer together. So when, you know, Audrey gets dragged into the plant by the, the crew members, she's been eaten. He and Seymour dies. The plant burps and wins. You know that the actors are all going to come out and take a bow. It's different when it's a movie. The planned ending cost $5 million alone, pushing Little Shop's budget to $25 million, which at the time was the most expensive movie that Warner Brothers had ever financed. And but this is the original ending? Yeah, with oh, the original okay. ending included. To put that in perspective, the most expensive film Warner Brothers did before Little Shop was Aliens, which cost $18 million. Really? That seems like such a tiny budget for Aliens. Well, that's in, like, early hey, 1980s hey, money. Yeah, okay, sure. Inflation. Yeah, test audiences for the film hated this ending. It stopped <laughs> the movie cold. They were, they were laughing and cheering and singing and dancing. And then Audrey, too, ate the protagonists. And they're just, no, they didn't like that. Yeah, it, it is a sad ending. All of, like, the somewhere that's green or suddenly Seymour. Like, when you're watching the stage show and you know they're going to get eat, it, it's a lot sadder. When I described the original ending to Eddie at work, he did not care for it. He's like, that ending's <laughs> bullshit. The change was a good one. Yeah, I yeah. agree. Yeah, Warner Brothers forced Oz to go back and reshoot the happier ending. Frank Oz was disappointed about doing this, but he went along with it. I mean, he, he saw the focus group, too, and he couldn't say that they were wrong. Yeah, I mean, Mean Green Mother is still a catchy song. There is another song, which I'm sure, you know, you can search the any sort of Broadway cast recording. Don't Feed the Plants. That's the usual ending song. They also cut, the dentist has another song. Um, it's Just the Gas, which he's singing to entice Seymour into helping him take the gas mask off at the end. He's like, I left myself too. 
Uh, Little Shop was intended for a summer release, which sounds weird, but this is like two years after Ghostbusters, so high-concept comedies were like, oh, we have another Ghostbusters on our hands. Let's print the money! We even, we... Have, we even have one of the funny guys from <laughs> Ghostbusters in it. Oh my god, yeah, Bill Murray. Also Rick Moranis. Oh shit, yeah, you're right. I, I always forget that. I mean, honestly, I owe Rick Moranis, like, so much of my childhood. And, you know, literally a few days before we recorded this episode, he got punched in the face in New York City. Like, international beloved treasure Rick Moranis. How dare the universe. Yeah, I know, that was... A bunch, of, <laughs> a bunch of assholes got their comeuppance during early October 2020, and then Rick Moranis gets punched in the face, just reminding us that things are just rough all around. Mm -hmm. Being forced to shoot the new ending meant that Little Shop got delayed until December, so the new ending could be finished. This ending was included in a 1998 DVD uh, as a special feature. However, Oz demanded that I be pulled because the footage was black and white and really choppy and he thought it was embarrassing. No subsequent issue of Little Shop on DVD or Blu-ray or what have you includes the original ending. Do you know if it's available on YouTube? Sometimes it is and sometimes it isn't. The original ending has been greened in uh, special presentations like, you know, Fathom Events and that sort of thing. Oz attended one of the screenings and the audience ate up the original ending. <laughs> but of course, this was decades later after the original ending had this aura of forbidden mystique surrounding it. Mm -hmm. All right, let's start talking about the cast of this, which frankly... There's I mean, no Rick, duds. Yeah, Rick, Rick Moranis is an internationally beloved treasure, but everyone in this film is really. Mm -hmm. but, but let's get started with Rick Moranis, who's yeah. pretty much perfect. Yeah. I mean, he's a beloved character actor who mm -hmm. keeps showing up in childhood favorites of mine, Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, Spaceballs, Spaceballs, Ghostbusters. I even really liked the live-action Flintstones movie as a kid. Yeah! I'm under the impression that I probably shouldn't revisit it. Yeah, I, yeah, I know, same here. I don't need to watch it. All I know about it now is that um, Kyle MacLachlan is in it, and there's, like, he, like, apparently Googled, like, scenes of himself in that, and literally is this montage of, like, his because nobody wears shoes in that movie and he's like oh okay i guess that's why people like watching this movie now <laughs> lots of people uh, have told me that flintstones is very bad i believe them i but mean i, I liked like, it when i was a kid <laughs> i liked it when i was seven i want the good flintstones from when i was seven to live on in my head so i will mm -hmm. probably not watch it again yeah i don't need to watch it but yes uh, rick moranis is Really charming and affable and likable. He's as adorable. Nevish, as this nevish little dweeb. He, mm -hmm. he, he knows that part inside or out. He's basically playing rips on and everything else he's in. Yeah, I mean, it is always fun watching him as Dark Helmet because then he gets to be kind of a dick. He also doesn't have a bad voice. He doesn't have Broadway no. vibes, but he's... He, he can hit the, the notes, yeah. Yeah, it made me think, oh, right, after he dropped out of acting, he passed the time by being a country singer. Good for him! You know what? Good for him. All right, next person, Ellen Green, is Audrey. She is the only performer from the stage show to be in the film, and she has Broadway pipes. Oh, yeah, and um, she's kind of like a bit of a character actress. She was in uh, Brian Fuller's Pushing Daisies as one of the kooky aunts. 
I see you doing that like affected squeaky voice, not dissimilar from singing in the rain, but then it's time for her to do a number and she suddenly has a diaphragm. Yeah, very much so. But I think that Lena Lamont has like a much different voice. She's like, what's wrong with my voice? Am I dumb or something? Yeah, she's more aggressive. Yeah, well. Audrey is more of a wilting, shrinking violet. Yeah, the, the breathy voice. Yeah. Yeah, for a bit, uh, Madonna was considered for uh, Audrey, but they couldn't get her. I think uh, Ellen Green's great. Cindy Lauper was approached, and she has the voice for oh, it. Oh, Cindy Lauper would have been a really good choice yeah, for she, Audrey. Yeah, she would have crushed it, and she really wanted the part. But oh. Cindy Lauper was one of the most famous people in the world in 1986 and couldn't carve out in a couple of weeks to do it. Oh, no. So Ellen Green was their <laughs> third choice. But she's good. Yeah. Uh, next is uh, Vincent Gardini's Mushnick, another character actor with a jillion credits. This is just another stop on the road for him. Mushnick is, I, I think it's a pretty thankless role, but yeah. he, he does give a lot to it. He has fun in Like, there's no duds in here. And uh, in the stage show, Mushnick has a song. He gets to ham it up, but I can kind of see why it would be cut. For time. It's kind of a pointless song. Although he gets to sing, but you can cut it. Uh, the first of our big celebrity ringers, Steve Martin. Oh Warren. my god. <laughs> yeah, it's a, actually a pretty small part, but Martin was on set for six weeks just because he kept asking to do retakes because he thought he could do the, the scene better. And he kept suggesting things like when he's doing his big musical number. He's like ripping a head off a doll and punching a nurse in the face. He that was... hams it up. Yeah, those are all his ideas. <laughs> yeah, no. Okay, initially, he was supposed to put like a gas mask on the nurse. He's like, it'd be funny if I just punched her. <laughs> yes. He's just completely deranged. And it's just like one of those moments where like he appears in the Muppet movie as like the waiter with like the tiny tiny shorts and like you and I watched that we were just like losing it because it was so funny I mean Steve Martin could read the phone book and make you laugh I mean I've seen some really terrible Steve Martin movies but this is <laughs> this is when he's in his imperial phase and just every time he mugs at the camera he gets a laugh and he's just constantly looking at the camera yeah oh yeah he did make that Pink Panther remake <laughs> All right, getting back to the Motown thing, Levi Stubbs is Ugh. the singing voice of Audrey too. For those of you who are too baby to uh, be familiar with early 60s Motown, Levi Stubbs is the frontman for the Four Tops, singing a whole bunch of songs that have... It's hard to believe that there was a period where these songs didn't exist because I grew up with them just being like constantly Same. on in the background. You know, Sugar Pie, Honey Bunch, um, it's the same old song, Seven Rooms of Gloom. Like, they come on at work on certain stations that I choose to play, and then I see the four tops, and I'm like, wait a second. It's Audrey 2! He's here! Yeah, his approach in the four tops is a bit different from Audrey 2 when he's singing in the four tops. Doing, like, maybe a half step above his comfort range, so he's sort of, like, straining himself with the yearningness that puts him in the same, like, yardage as, like, James Brown territory. Mm -hmm. And this one, he's ridiculously over the top. Oh, it's, like, yeah. spasmodic queenish Little Richard stuff. And <laughs> yeah. He just sort of kept with that because after Little Shop of Horrors, he did a bunch of other like voice acting roles. There's this terrible Saturday morning cartoon called Captain and the Game Master that was just product placement for Nintendo products. <laughs> and 
Levi Stubbs voices Mother Brain, the main bad guy from Metroid, and Mother Brain has that little <laughs> Richard will to it. Well, <laughs> accounts, Stubbs was a stand-up guy. He was fiercely loyal to his bandmates. Uh, Motown good. kept trying to push him into recording a solo record, but he wouldn't do it because he didn't want to leave his bandmates behind, unlike, say, Diana Ross. <laughs> and... Even though none of the other members of the Tops were involved in Little Shop of Horrors in any capacity, Levi Stubbs split his fee with them evenly. Yeah, and even in the credits, he's billed as Levi Stubbs of the Four Tops. Yeah, no, he, I, I honestly think that, you know, you get to, if you're like the puppeteer for the plant, you get to move as you perform, like, the, the guy who voiced uh, Audrey 2 in the high school production I was a part of, he had to sit backstage with a headset so that he could get his cues and a microphone and a script. And I don't know how he did it without, like, moving and bopping to the music the whole time as Audrey 2. Because honestly, the plant gets all of the best songs, except maybe except for the dentist. Uh, another um, uh, ringer, uh, John Candy is Wink Wilkinson. One scene wanted, wonder. <laughs> yeah, one scene wonder. Uh, when when Seymour is becoming a local celebrity, he's interviewed for our radio show about weirdness. It's like this talk show, and John Candy's the host of the talk show. Apparently, Candy was approached to play Mushnick, but he wasn't interested. He's like, do you have a small bit part where Aww. I can only be on set for a couple days? Aww. It made me think of. John Candy was offered a part in Ghostbusters, <laughs> and he blew it off. He didn't want to be in it. He thought Ghostbusters was a crappy script. But he insisted <laughs> that he wouldn't do the movie unless they let his giant dogs be in the movie, too. <laughs> and they was like, all right, never mind. And they offered his part to Rick Moranis. Oh! And Moranis is like, I am thrilled that John Candy hated this part because I love it. <laughs> Yeah, honestly, John Candy is just one of my favorite actors. Again, another another actor who I owe so many happy childhood memories. And uh, apparently, um, it was the anniversary of, it, of his death a few months ago, and his children were giving some interviews about him. And his son had this one memory, uh, and he said that like usually it's like his dad was always like you know fun and games like all the time. He was like a real funny you know gentle guy, and he says that the only time his dad ever got mad is because John Candy's like one of his serious roles is in the JFK movie with like Oliver Stone. And I he, keep forgetting he's in that. Yeah, I know. I mean, I've never actually I've never actually seen it, but it's not good. Yeah, I know that's what I've heard. But apparently, since it was a serious movie, he says that his dad was, like, outside practicing his lines. And, like, he and his sister are playing in, like, the swimming pool being loud. And his dad's like, hey, you kids, be quiet. I'm trying to act here or something. <laughs> yeah, the next extraneous celebrity cameo, uh, Bill Murray oh as the God. masochistic dental patient. <laughs> Now, the script for this scene didn't give Bill Murray any lines. He was only called to do orgasmic screams. So all of it is just ad-libs on his part, which I find very easy. Yeah, honestly, that scene is just, its it feels kind of out of place. But because it's Bill Murray just losing his shit, it's entertaining. Yeah, where Little Shop came out, you know, mid-80s, getting to the period where all of those um, improv comedians, the Second City, Groundling, mm-hmm. Saturday Night Live people are starting to, like, take over cinematic comedy, and they're actually becoming, like, big marquee stars and getting more to the point where they're just throwing out the script and just ad-libbing lines, which kind of came around to bite us in the ass, particularly 
over the 2000s, maybe tighter script control would have made some of those hangover movies easier to sit through, but... You, you watch more than the first one? I watched the first one once. But, you know, works in Little Shop. <laughs> yes. The dental tools used to torture Bill Murray in those scenes were reused for the Joker's plastic surgery scenes in 1989's Batman. Yeah, you know what? Save a little money. Don't fabricate them. Just steal them. It's just uh, interesting because that scene calls for Jack Nicholson to be in front of those tools. (laughs) And he is the masochistic dental patient in the original Time is a circle. Time is a circle. The lame Belushi, Jim Belushi, plays Patrick Martin, the opportunist that Seymour chases away before his final uh, confrontation with Audrey, too. Wait, was was Jim Belushi alive at this point? Could they have gotten him? Uh, John Belushi? Yeah. Uh, no, no, he was dead at that point. Oh, shit. Jim Belushi was a last-minute replacement for uh, Paul Dooley, who had initially played the character in the original ending. However, he was occupied with another part when they had to do the reshoot, so Belushi just slipped in and apparently did them a solid. Did we mention uh, Christopher Guest is in here? Uh, yeah, Christopher Guest is the credulous flower shop guy who's like, oh, you can't break 100 Well, I guess I'll have to buy $100 worth of roses. Yeah, he's very robotic. It's kind of funny. <laughs> but I feel like Christopher Guest is just really one of those character actors who can just honestly, he's a chameleon. Like, you know, Nigel Tufnell, all the other, like, best in show where he plays, like, this redneck hound guy. And it's just... It's weird to see him outside of his fake documentaries. Exactly. I'm like, what are you doing out in the wild? Or or as like the six-fingered man in The Princess Bride. (laughs) I keep forgetting that too. Yeah, me too. I'm like, oh shit, where's the credits? I'm like, he's got the wig and the facial hair and he's being an asshole. And he's not saying, this one goes up to 11. Yeah, Little Shop of Horrors had a $25 million budget, as I mentioned before. Uh, it made $39 million at the box office, making it a flop. Uh, Warner Brothers considered it a disappointment. However, it was instantaneously a big hit on home video. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, it eventually rode off into a profitable sunset. It's definitely a cult classic. I think it's gone beyond cult. I mean, you were in a school production. I was sort of in a school production. I'm sure most of the people who listen to this were in a school production. Yeah, or or saw one. Yeah, we all know Little Shop. We all probably stumbled across it either through cable or streaming. Yeah, and I think, honestly, anytime there's any sort of, like, mouth-shaped plant, people just go, feed me, Seymour! And they they know what it's from. Yeah, it is. (laughs) Yeah. And it did get some award loves. Mm -hmm. Uh, At the Golden Globes, it was nominated for Best Picture Musical or Comedy. It lost to Hannah and Her Sisters. Boo! Yeah, time has not been kind to Hannah and Her Sisters and her audience director. (laughs) It also got a nod for uh, Best Score. It lost to uh, Ennio Morricone's score for The Mission. Okay, you know what? Honestly, The Mission is an okay movie, which is elevated by its soundtrack. Like, Gabriel's oboe is beautiful. Yeah, hardly the first time that composer has done such a thing to a film. Yeah. I am okay with The, with, with the Mission. <laughs> yeah, or, yes, yes. If it was any other direct, any other composer who was not Nico Morricone, then I'd be like... <laughs> it also got some Oscar no- nods. Oh, uh, wow. Yeah, it got a nomination for its visual effects. I mean, of course. And it got a nomination for Best Original Song for Mean Green Mother from Outer Space. 
Yes, Mean Green Mother from Water Out of Space is not in the original production. Yeah. It was written specifically for this film, so they have something to get an Oscar nomination yeah, I think... for. And usually those songs are bullshit. No, it's a catchy song. And even though it has, like, Audrey, too, has, like, little sprouts that, that is a, act as a backup chorus. They're like, ah, ah, ah. It slips right into the movie. Yeah. The movie and the show. My school production had it. Nice. Uh, it lost to Take My Breath Away by Berlin from Top Gun. Fuck that! <laughs> I actually kind of like that song. I, mean, I like it too, but it, like, it's the a guilty scene, pleasure. Yeah, the scene that it's in in Top Gun, the Tom Cruise be using too much tongue. <laughs> I'm not sure if I'm ever going to do an episode on Top Gun. I hate that movie. I would rip it to shreds. <laughs> I would only do it if I could bring someone on who's actually like, Top Gun's a really good movie, just so it wouldn't be too No, you know what? You should get my dad to do it, because when he was in basic training, that was the only movie that they had to watch. <laughs> How does he not hate it, then? No, he does hate it. No. My dad hates Top Gun. As of this recording, there is a remake that is in stall production because of COVID-19. Mm-hmm. It was announced a little earlier this year. It's been in development hell for a while, but apparently the wheels are turning at least as much as they can in this atmosphere. Taron Egerton's going to be uh, playing Seymour. Scarlett he jo- can't sing. Scarlett Johansson is attached as Audrey. She can kind of sing. She uh, has a Vanity album out. She has a couple of Vanity albums out. Uh, I, I listened to her Tom Waits one just out of morbid curiosity, and Tom Waits is not a demanding vocalist to imitate. She's okay. I, I'm kind of hoping they get a professional vocalist Same to dub her voice here. in. But well, they don't really do that anymore, no. so we might be getting Pierce Brosnan and Mamma Mia vibes again. <laughs> you leave him alone. Uh, and Taron Egerton can sing. He he was, what's his face? Elton John. And he did a good job. My friend was playing the soundtrack for it. And I was like, wow, he, he does a pretty good job. Yeah, people have told me that Rocket Man isn't your typical musical biopic. I'm still a little wary of that because I am bored shitless by musician biopics. But hey, maybe Rocket Man's good. I'll get around to it if I have a free <laughs> weekend. Uh, Billy uh, Porter is supposedly Audrey, too. And he's a good choice. He's a yeah, ham. Yeah, he is. The, honestly, out of all three of them, he's the best choice and i remember hearing that lady gaga had said that one of her dream roles would be audrey too so if billy porter is busy i think lady gaga would have a good time as audrey too apparently right now chris evans is being approached to play Orin, the sadistic dentist can he sing can chris evans sing chris pine can sing if we're talking about hollywood chris's I'm not sure, although, I mean, Chris Evans seems to love playing sadistic little assholes whenever he's not Captain America, so I can see him being fun, even if he doesn't have the pipes for it. I mean, he was one of the best parts of God Pilgrim versus the world. Yeah, and recently Knives Out. Oh, yeah, Knives Out. All right, thematic bits. I only dashed off a couple of bullet points here. The nature of moral compromise goes into the storytelling oh, elements of yeah. the show pretty hardcore. You know, Seymour is never not a likable character throughout this, but he he does give a bit of his soul to the devil. He does do some bad things. I mean, granted, the dentist definitely deserved it. Um, Mr. Mushnick, not so much. He's just a garden variety jerk, and he doesn't actually do anything out of genuine malice. 
And he still kind of, you know, lures him to the plant. Like in my production that I, that my high school did, Seymour is a little bit more, he actually gets Mushnick to look into the plant. And then, I don't know, maybe that's because the puppet is limited and he can't really move. Yeah, the movie does a bit of a cop out with that. I mean, um, Seymour doesn't kill Orin, but he has the gun out and he totally was going to. It's murder by an action. He lets him asphyxiate. Yeah, that made me think of the the Minions. Is it in the Minions movie? Which is bad. Don't watch it. <laughs> it's not the, expecting them to be name dropped. Yeah, the nature of the characters is that they're aligned with whoever the worst person in the world is. However, for most of the 20th century, they're in the North Pole, you know, so they can't become Hitler sidekicks. Yeah, um, my... But, you know, the fact that yeah. if they weren't trapped in the North Pole, they totally would have been Hitler sidekicks is almost worse. Yeah, um, I just remember being in the movie theater with my dad and a trailer from the Minions movie comes on, and then they're in, like, the 60s, and my dad was just like, who are they going to work for in the 60s? Richard Nixon? And I was like, how about Charles Manson? <laughs> Miles Adon? Yeah, maybe. We'll go. Let's go with that. George Wallace? <laughs> so many choices. I know, okay. right? <laughs> Another element of this, at least in the behind-the-scenes things, is uh, altering one's artistic vision in order to make your work more marketable. Mm -hmm. uh, that is a crossroads that creative people all have to approach at some point or another, uh, particularly if you're working in film, which auteur theory aside, which once again, we've discussed on previous episodes, I think is a very limited way of looking at filmmaking. It is a collaborative medium. You do have to work with people and compromise. Frank Oz wanted the original ending, but he was forced to put on his big boy pants and just <laughs> sort of roll with it because... There's profit to be had. Yeah, I still think it's the the right decision because of what I said earlier about the line between performance and watching something. Like, I went and I, I watched a performance of Titus Andronicus, and they warned the audience that if you were standing close to the stage, you were going to get blood splatter on you. And, like, that made it, like, even though you're, like, watching this violence, like, happen just a few feet away from you, it was still really cool because it felt like you were part of it. If it had been a movie, like, watching how horrib horribly violent the ending of it is, and I've never seen the Julie Taymor version. It's on my list. I definitely probably would have viewed it more differently. What works on one artistic medium doesn't necessarily translate to another one. Mm -hmm. There's something to be said for the live theater uh, element where you're in there and you're seeing the people live on stage and there's no shortage of beloved stage programs that were adapted to a film that just wasn't very good. Yeah, like... The producers... The producers, how about the lame Miz music, movie musical? Oh, uh, yeah, that one's bad. And yeah. also, that one made money, but Cats didn't. I know. I, I think that, well, not to shell for another creator, but uh, Lindsay Ellis had a really good point in one, uh, in her move, in her video about Cats, was that you it was a little bit easier to kind of weave in the musical elements to Chicago because it was established that unless there's like a stage performance going on, all of the uh, musical scenes are in Roxy's imagination. So you're allowed to have like that 
flamboyancy to it. Yeah, Alice also talks about you know, diegetic versus non-diegetic music. Yeah. You know, when you're watching a stage musical, it doesn't really matter as much if it's diegetic, but if you're watching a film, which is at least on its face supposed to be a little more realistic, even if it's a fantastical movie, mm-hmm. yeah, it's, it's a little harder to get away with that sort of thing. Yeah, Maggie Mae Fish also brings that up in her Cats video. Yeah, I did not see Cats. I mean, I loved the VHS of, like, the film stage production as a child. And then about five years ago, I rewatched it with my grandfather, and I was like, I liked this. I'm not crazy about Andrew Lloyd Webber in general. Uh... Yeah, the final point that's in my notes is... Uh, this film is a metaphor for the white flight to the suburbs, because that's definitely in the subtext. Yeah. I, I wouldn't say that Little Shop of Horrors is consciously attempting to be about racism, but when you see white people running around doing Motown stuff, it's kind of there, whether you, whether you directly address it or not. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I went to a very, very white school, and so... We didn't have any black people in our musical department, unfortunately. So the Motown backup singers were all white girls. Audrey and Seymour both want to run away from Skid Row and go to some place that is safe and cloistered and redlined where they can sell <laughs> Tupperware and mow the lawn. And the, the suburban scenes, probably because they were rushing to film it at the last minute, but there's a deliberate plasticity to them. Yeah, they feel very much like a fan. Yeah, but the entire film is very heightened and not real. They look like constructed sets and not actual city streets, but the suburbs even more so. Yeah, it's like you you're, you're when you're watching like the Skid Row scenes, you 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 know it's fake, but your brain as a viewer, you just go with it. You just don't notice it. You filter it out. You notice that it's a set and it's pretend in the you know the suburb scenes. And it's just kind of funny though that it's supposed to be like the early sixties, where at least they're so. I mean, I love reading and writing about the sixties, but would I want to go back in time and live there? It's a shitty decade. So at least it was in the part of the sixties that was not so obviously shitty i'm making quotation marks i realize that you're only hearing my voice yeah all right well that's everything in my notes is there uh, any element of little shop that we haven't discussed that you want to end the show on mm, i guess that i think the only thing i want to say is that when we are allowed to have public performances and stage shows without huge fear of safety go support your local theaters and your local acting groups that's it. <laughs> At any given moment, somebody within driving distance of you is doing Little Shop. Yeah, I really want to see it again as a stage show. That'd be fun. That's it. Uh, yeah, that's a, that's a good, good as note to end on as any. All right, good night. We will see you again soon.